Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 174, A Government Without Options. First, I want to thank buddy and new patron, Christo Konstantinov. Shout out to Christo. Hope to see you soon. And a fun shout out to Kalyan and Emel. I think that's how his name would be pronounced. Two fans who gave the podcast a shout out uh, on their Spotify wrapped. So I saw them on Twitter. So hey, Kalyan and Emel. On that note, there are also some interesting uh, things from the podcast Spotify wrapped. Apparently this podcast is a lot more shared and everything than I realized. It was in their top 5% in the world. So That's really cool, and thank all of you for making that happen. So let's get into it. Last time, a non-party government under Rachel Petrov ensured Bulgaria experienced its most free and fair elections in decades, resulting in an unstable conservative coalition governing under Petko Karavelov in his fourth time at being prime minister. However, his government quickly canceled the 10% tie that gave amnesty to those who had previously opposed it, so, you know, magnanimous gestures there. Meanwhile, though, Ferdinand was moving towards uh, kind of closer relations with Russia, but was still more or less stuck between great powers, which all wanted the status quo in Macedonia and, well, revolutionary groups demanding the exact opposite. So Ferdinand's kind of stuck between the great powers and the MRO and the supremacists. But at this moment, the Ottomans managed to arrest a huge number of senior MRO members, effectively kind of cutting off the head of the organization. The one left with the stationary needed to send official orders, and so kind of de facto in control, was Arofen Ivan Gervanov, the former revolutionary brotherhood leader who had originally wanted to destroy the MRO anyways. So, ironic. But for now, the organization is basically super decentralized and rather ineffective as it's still trying to kind of recover from this and figure out, I mean, is Gervanov the leader? They are not sure. Meanwhile, the supremacists are trying to take advantage, but are pretty weak themselves as Tsonchev and Serafov are fighting over the leadership of that organization. Then, despite all the chaos happening at the MRO, several of its members managed to kidnap an American mercenary and her Bulgarian companion, creating an international incident, but ultimately getting the MRO a huge amount of cash as a result. Now, all this brings us to July of 1901. True, we jumped ahead to late 1901 to cover the entire Miss Stone affair, but we've got some stuff to catch up with elsewhere. First, the 10th of July saw the death of Clement, Metropolitan of Tornovo, at the age of 60. In case you've forgotten, he well, he has a long history here. He had joined Rukovsky's 1st Bulgarian Legion all the way back in 1861, fighting against the Ottomans in Serbia. Then, after working closely with many Bulgarian revolutionaries, he traveled to Kiev to further his religious education, and by the time Bulgaria obtained its partial independence, he was prominent enough to be named Metropolitan of Tornovo. He was then part of the Grand National Assembly, which approved the constitution before serving as prime minister twice, all while being rather pro-Russian and anti-Stambolov as well as anti-Prince Ferdinand. Finally, he also wrote some plays and short stories and helped found what would become the Bulgarian Academy of Sciences. In other words, 
It's easy to just overlook him as merely a church figure, but Clement was much more than that. He was a warrior, a writer, a politician, and even an occasional outlaw. It's a reminder of how few of the major figures of that era of Bulgarian history are alive by this point, even though it's only been barely two to three decades since that time. I mean, as I said, Clement was only 60. And, well, that brings us to another death, because Stoilov has recently died as well, another member of the Constituent Assembly before becoming Prime Minister. His death meant that the People's Party, which actually had won the largest number of votes in the recent elections, lost its main figurehead. As a result, Ivan Geshov was elected the new leader of the People's Party. So, despite not being a very kind of ambitious person when it comes to his personality, he's, you know, more of a workaholic and kind of nose to the grindstone, but Stoilov, or uh, rather Geshov, was now incredibly wealthy, probably the wealthiest Bulgarian in the world, and the head of one of the major political parties, and had also been recently elected president of the National Assembly. So, I don't know, he, he seems so mild-mannered, but yet he's sort of running so many things. Well, Geshov at this point was trying to use all this power to try to bring more responsibility and civility to Bulgarian politics, which, you know, frankly, I agree with him, that is sorely lacking at this moment. And he was kind of attempting to move the National Assembly towards stricter parliamentary rules, emphasizing that it should debate ideas and not personalities, so, you know, fewer ad hominem attacks, and frankly, this is a problem that I think plagues Bulgaria's National Assembly now. So, you know, it's a long-standing thing. Now, when Geshev took over the People's Party, he worked with the, its newspaper Mir to ensure that it would help stricter journalistic standards and actually enhance political debate instead of just mudslinging. All that is to say, Geshev was, in my personal opinion, fighting the right fight at this moment in Bulgarian politics. He attempted to lead the change he wanted to see in Bulgaria's political culture through actions like his solemn commemoration of the 25th anniversary of the April Uprising and the laying of the cornerstone of the statue of Tsar Alexander II, which still stands in front of the National Assembly today. Overall, it was an auspicious time for such a commemoration, because Ferdinand's attempts to move towards Russia weren't really producing any changes in their Macedonian policy, in fact, at some point this year, Russia officially announced that it would not interfere in any way if the Ottomans suppressed any activities in Macedonia. In other words, if there was some kind of an uprising in Macedonia, the Russians gave the Ottomans absolute carte blanche to suppress those people and, you know, basically uh, enact harsh reprisals as much as they want. But, despite all this, Fernand's move towards Russia was bearing some fruit. Now, recall how that controversial 10% tax had just been repealed and basically that, that tax existed because there was a gaping hole in Bulgaria's finances? Well, in late June, Tsar Alexander II's brother arrived in Varna, marking the first time such a senior Russian royal had ever visited Bulgaria. This meant it was both a sign of the Tsar's favor towards Bulgaria at this moment and an opportunity for Ferdinand and his government to build on that relationship. Vitally, the Russians brought news that they were offering a four, bil four million rather, franc loan to Bulgaria. So Russia was going to at least try to help Bulgaria deal with its difficult budgetary situation. However, despite this, Bulgaria's finances were still in a rather desperate state, and a new foreign loan besides that Russian one was still needed to avoid bankruptcy. Essentially, the government wanted to do the classic debt refinancing move, 
kind of obtaining one very large loan and using it to pay off all the smaller ones and simplifying the debt and ideally getting smaller payments through the whole process. This eventually led to negotiations with the Banque de Pays de Paybas. I'm hoping I'm remembering how to pronounce French. Anyways, a major Franco-Dutch bank. Loan terms were negotiated, but from the Bulgarian perspective, they were rather harsh. A 5% interest rate, and the collateral would be the market monopoly of Bulgar Tabak. So, the Bulgarian tobacco company. So, in other words, this meant that if Bulgaria defaulted, then its state government monopoly would hand over the monopoly to sell tobacco in the company to this bank. At least, that's my interpretation of the terms. They weren't super clearly explained where I could find them. But... Regardless of what exactly that meant in practice, uh, this immediately brought about considerable opposition to the loan, not just from actual opposition parties, but from many government supporters and nearly everyone involved in the tobacco industry was very upset about this. In essence, this was the beginning of the end for the Karavelov government. Soon, Ivan Geshev resigned as president of the National Assembly, and it was clear that there were not enough votes in the assembly for this loan to go through. Karavelov desperately argued with the bank, attempting to salvage his government by getting them to modify the terms, but they were not having it. Finally, in mid-December, the assembly indeed voted against the loan, and the Karavelov government resigned. New elections would be held in mid-February of 1902. So, the battle over the 10% tax had been won by those who opposed it, but they had then been unable to provide a better alternative, and so, well, the Bulgarian political situation seemed to be back at square one, right? Bulgaria had that huge gap in its finances. One party proposed the 10% tax. It caused a huge furor, you know, the, the rise of the agrarian parties, all this opposition, you know, trade up violence and, uh, you know, near attempts at rebellion. Now it's gone, but no one has something to replace it. And so everyone's still scrambling. Now, interestingly enough, debt was obviously a massive problem for Bulgaria, but it was also a huge problem for basically the whole region. Bulgaria, Serbia, Romania, and Greece were all attempting to make huge investments in their infrastructure, their economies, and especially their militaries. As a result, each one had a rather staggering foreign debt. Now, Bulgaria's, and we've seen how, you know, how much pressure this is creating, was only 270 million leva. In leva, Serbia's was 400 million. Greece's was 800 million. Romania's was 1.5 billion leva. You know, Romania's was nearly six times that of Bulgaria. And so Bulgaria, ironically, actually had the smallest debt in the region. And yet, about one-third of its budget was going towards things like the armies, and it wanted to fund these expensive railways. And so even despite having the smallest debt in the region, it was all still enough to rather cripple Bulgaria. But anyways... Although just months earlier, Ferdinand had shown immense favor towards Ivan Geshev and the People's Party, he now responded to the party's opposition to the French loan by turning against Geshev himself and the party as a whole with a vengeance. So with the Karavelov-led government gone, a new government was formed by the Tsankovists, aka the Progressive Liberal Party. I know, honestly, it's very hard to keep the party straight with so many of the names being nearly identical, but... You, know, you can remember this was the party of Alexander Tsankov, the first prime minister. Now, he himself has retired from politics, and so now the head of this party is Stoyan Danev, and so the new prime minister is Stoyan Danev. Now, Danev 
had been receiving a scholarship from, or had received a scholarship from Evlogi Gergeyev to attend high school in Prague before volunteering to fight in the Serbo-Turkish War of 1876, before going on to study law in Switzerland and Germany, before also obtaining a political science degree in Paris. In other words, he was without a doubt one of the best educated Bulgarians of his era. But now he's in charge and new elections are coming soon, and well, we'll see how those go. But first, we have a few more events to cover to finish up 1901. In October, just as those debates over the French loan were getting underway, the Third Agrarian Congress was held in Sofia. Once again, the main topic of debate was whether the agrarians should participate in politics. Tsirkovsky argued that because the 10% tithe had been repealed, there was no reason for the union to continue to participate in politics. Now, honestly, that seems incredibly naive to me, essentially arguing that you won one single political fight and so there's no reason to be involved in politics anymore because, you know, there's no way another thing could ever happen that would anger the peasants and, you know, justify some party to represent them. So, yeah, uh, I can't believe he actually makes that point, but, you know, there you go. Now, after Tsiolkovsky makes his point, another member discussed how upset he was to see that many candidates had won seats in the previous National Assembly as agrarians, only to join other political groups because there wasn't an official kind of agrarian party. And, well, several of those men were in the uh, crowd, and they were pretty mad about this, and so they got up to defend themselves, yada yada. So, you know, a little bit of angry shouting going on, but ultimately... Those in favor of becoming a genuine political party won the day, and the union officially changed its name to the Bulgarian Agrarian National Union, or in English, Banu, in Bulgarian it's Bezinese, but I'll, I'll kind of refer to them as Banu. So, this new organization resolved to participate in all levels of politics, from the national level down to the local level. So, Great, you know, they, they, they finally resolved this question and decided to commit to political participation. And you would think that finally resolving this huge internal struggle would make Banu stronger. However, this decision led many of those who opposed it to just straight up leave the organization, including Tsarkovsky himself, one of the original founders. Yet, even losing so many of their supporters and becoming a political party didn't mean that Banu had a unified political platform. So yeah, they resolved this one issue, but they, they still need to have a kind of clear sense of what they stand for. Now, to be clear, Beno had a clear mission to improve agriculture and the status of the pe as a peasantry, but it lacked what Bell refers to as a charter myth, a clear statement of what is wrong with the country and what the party plans to do about it. Now, in this extended quote, Bell outlines the problem, writing, quote, most of the remaining agrarian leaders agreed that the wretched condition of the peasantry was due primarily to the incompetence and venality of the country's political leaders, and that only a peasant organization could overcome this. But they had no explanation for the low quality of Bulgaria's political leadership and were divided on the form their own activity should take. This had not been a hindrance because the struggle against the, uh, during the struggle against the tithe, when agrarian leaders easily aroused the peasants and directed them into political action. But beyond demanding the resignation of the government and the relief of the most severe hardships of rural life, they put forward no consistent alternatives to the existing political, social, and economic structure of the country. 
Even the victory of the advocates of political action at the Third Congress did not result in the formulation of a specifically agrarian critique of society or a specifically agrarian program for the future. Now that the Union was in politics, what were its candidates to promise? There were the long-standing grievances of high taxes and a lack of credit, but the Karavelov and Danov governments alleviated these problems, although they didn't eliminate them entirely. Moreover, improved harvests and the temporary return of prosperity reduced the sense of emergency that had prevailed during the tithe struggle. The lack of a charter myth that could retain the commitment of Banu's erstwhile supporters led to declining membership, inability to raise funds, and defeat at the polls. End quote. Now, that was a long quote, but I felt it was, it was worth it because it does such a good job of explaining both the promise and the potential of Banu as well as why it has so far utterly failed to live up to that promise. But otherwise, besides, you know, that third Congress, 1901 saw the founding of the Bulgarian Archaeological and Historical Society. So that's nice. Now, before we enter 1902, the first event of that year is an interesting insight into something we've talked about before the extent to which most educated Bulgarians were only really able to get good jobs from the government directly. Now, a man from Prilep in Macedonia named Toma Karanyulov, I think that's how you would pronounce his name, had worked as a teacher in Bulgaria before being fired after basically they decided he was unfit to teach. He then spent years writing to and even threatening ministers asking to get his job back. Now, in the early days of 1902, he went to the ministry or to the office of the Ministry of Public Education and uh, and met the minister, Vasil Kanchov, and shot him dead. So, Kanchov had studied chemistry in Kharkiv, volunteered in the Serbo-Bulgarian War, and even taught chemistry at the Bulgarian high school in Thessaloniki, that one that had been the birthplace of the MRO. In his life, he produced the first volume of Bulgarian population statistics on Macedonia, and generally worked very hard to bring educational opportunities to Macedonia. But, well, here we are, and yet young. Yet another young, he was just 39, educated, passionate, and skilled Bulgarian was dead. Even Geshov, an active participant in Bulgarian politics for decades by this point, felt that Bulgaria was increasingly under a new and a very different generation than the original generation of its kind of political life. Stotolova's biography writes how, quote, it seemed to Geshov that the second generation of Bulgarian statesmen possessed little of the sentiment that had inspired the original builders of Bulgaria, who, with their pure patriotism, unforced honesty, and selflessness, had carried the country from the revival to the new era. Since the turn of the century, death had taken so many talented statesmen. First, Stoilov and Grekov had gone, then Belinov, Ilya Tsankov, Ivan Slavekov, and now... I'm leaving off that quote because the last name is going to get filled in at the end of this episode, but you get the idea. So, Bulgarian politics is really experiencing a pretty substantial shift to a new, younger generation. But around this time, Bulgaria is rocked by yet another scandal. This time, it's about stamps. Yes, you heard me right, stamps. So, it begins with one Diko Jovev who had been the editor for a variety of newspapers in the 1880s before entering politics as a member of Stefan Stambolov's party. He was then fired from his government job when Stoilov took over, as pretty much everyone was, 
and he decided to flee to Switzerland before returning to Bulgaria, now claiming to be a doctor, though no one was ever to confirm how he got such a qualification, before basically getting close to the Racho Petrov government. So, around this time, he began putting together a scheme with several other men who worked for the Bulgarian National Bank to create fake stamps worth nearly a quarter of a million leva. This scheme began to unravel when a railway worker brought bought five stamps for the price of one from somebody and then used them to mail in his tax documents. Soon, a man named Ruse was caught selling these fake stamps at a heavy discount as well, and the Ministry of Finance soon realized that their revenue from one lev stamps was down by hundreds of thousands of leva and that fakes were now widely circulating. So this scheme had been going on for about two years by this point, and Yovef was finally arrested in the early days of 1902 and soon committed suicide with some poison he had sewed into his jacket. Other accomplices to the scheme were soon also arrested and received four to ten year prison sentences each. So already in just the first few weeks of 1902, Bulgaria had seen the assassination of a minister by a disgruntled ex-teacher and the death by suicide of the leader of a massive criminal enterprise to defraud the government. So not a particularly auspicious beginning to the year. Soon, though, all this led to the anticipated elections for the 12th National Assembly. This time, the ruling progressive liberals actually improved on their previous performance, going from 20% to now 30%. The conservative People's Party came in second with 20%, just a little bit less than it got last time, and the agrarians got about 12 seats, while the socialists improved from a mere two seats to seven so not a huge shift, but, you know, some move towards the progressive liberals. Overall, though, voter turnout was just under 50%, making this another record election for voter turnout. Overall, though, pro-Russian parties won big, while the agrarians and the socialists still remained, remained kind of marginal figures. But overall, leadership of the country didn't change much, and the progressive liberals went from ruling a kind of fractured coalition to having 47% of the seats by themselves, meaning that now they just needed one small coalition partner to rule, and, you know, that made things a lot easier for them. So, Stoyandanov remained prime minister, but now in a far stronger position. Likewise, Dragan Tsankov was in a very strong position as president of the National Assembly. With this pro-Russian government being so heavily reinforced by the election results, it's hardly surprising that within about two months, Prime Minister Danov was on a visit to St. Petersburg. Now, this visit seemed pretty successful, with Russia promising to help Bulgaria improve relations with Romania and to secure better loan terms from France. The two sides even signed a secret military convention aimed at neutralizing the similar convention that was signed recently between Romania and Austria-Hungary, and essentially, that promised joint action against Russia in case of war. So it's a bit of a secret alliance between Romania and Austria-Hungary. So this was in response. And the Bulgarian-Russian agreement saw... Well, sorry. The Austro-Hungarian agreement saw Austria-Hungary back Romania's claims on Bessarabia, which, yeah, okay, Russia controlled that, and there are a lot of Romanians there, yada yada, pretty understandable. But... It also saw Austria-Hungary backing Romania's claims to southern Dobruja, and even Bulgarian territory as far as Schumann, Ruse, and Varna, which, frankly, I had, this is the first time I ever heard that Romania had any claims on those three cities, so this is a bit surprising to me, but a large chunk of Bulgarian territory. So, in other words, 
This agreement between Romania and Austria-Hungary posed a significant threat to Bulgaria and, again, helped firmly push the country to a geopolitical alignment with Russia, which really limited Sofia's room for diplomatic maneuvering, which, as we know, was generally what Ferdinand kind of was good at. That's where, where he thrives. But at least things seem pretty clear. Bulgaria more or less has to be a Russian ally to survive a potential attack from Romania. Now, this new agreement with Russia was largely defensive in nature, stipulating that if Romania attacked Bulgaria, Russia would intervene. Likewise, if Russia were attacked by Romania, Austria-Hungary, or even Germany, Bulgaria would not just intervene, but would actually send its army to fight under Russian commanders. So imagine, at this moment, if Germany attacked Russia, Bulgaria would have to send its army, and it would fight under the Russians against the Germans. So, in effect, this tied Bulgaria not just to Russia, but to a wider Franco-Russian alliance, which will ultimately serve as the basis for the Entente in the First World War. So keep this in mind. At this moment, you know, Germany and Austria-Hungary, if I'm remembering right, their alliance is not kind of set in stone. They're, they're both a little up in the air, but France and Russia are firm allies, and Bulgaria is now firmly tied to that alliance. It's also worth noting that this agreement had no provisions for joint action against the Ottomans because, as we know, Russia was still backing the status quo in the Balkans, and particularly in Macedonia. So, yes, Russia was deepening ties with Bulgaria, but this agreement was designed merely to ensure Bulgaria did not lose yet more territory, and it was explicitly not designed to help Bulgaria achieve any territorial gains, which it wanted. Now, the agreement was set for a period of 10 years, so it was set to expire in, checks notes, 1912. However, none of this really meant that Russia was also only going back to Bulgaria, even in its peaceful attempts to increase its influence in Macedonia, as shortly after the secret agreement was signed, Russia backed a successful Serbian attempt to get its candidate installed as the Bishop of Skopje, which massively increased Serbian influence in Macedonia. And as Russia backed this, and the government was clearly pro-Russian, well, people were really mad at the Bulgarian government. Like, what the hell, guys? You know, you, you're so pro-Russian, you just visited St. Petersburg, you're, you're tying yourself so much to the Russians, and yet the Russians basically just stabbed us in the back and enabled Serbia to improve its influence in Macedonia. So, the government got a lot of flack for this diplomatic loss. And the Bulgarian exarchate even broke ties with the government. It was so angry about this. And so, perhaps partly as a result of the Skopje incident, the Bulgarian government actually never ratified the secret agreement with Russia. So, you think of it this way, like, Bulgaria is just getting the worst of both worlds. It's being put in a situation where it has to ally with Russia, except Russia is not exactly being a good ally. It's not aiming to help Bulgaria achieve absolutely any of its aims, and actually it's helping Bulgaria's rivals achieve their aims. So, yeah, Bulgaria is in a really difficult geopolitical position. In essence, it's in a spot where all of its neighbors are rivals, right? Greece and Serbia both want Macedonia, which Bulgaria wants, and then Romania has claims on a huge chunk of eastern Bulgaria. And Bulgaria doesn't have a clear great power ally because, I mean, yes, it's allying with Russia, but Russia is not helping very much. So Bulgaria, it seems at this moment, has a dangerous level of isolation and is surrounded by enemies. So that's where we'll wrap up today's episode. Several major Bulgarian statesmen have died, 
and the country itself is in a very difficult financial and geopolitical position. Bulgaria needs the backing of a great power. It needs a major loan to help shore up its finances, but it has next to no choice in either matter. It's, it seems Bulgaria is just always in a take-it-or-leave-it kind of position. Anyways, though, the country is now run by a strong pro-Russian government, but one that's not having a lot of Russian success, and the agrarians have decided for good that they are going to become a political party, but that decision has weakened them substantially. At least voter participation is up. Also, one final note. Apologies, the end of last episode, I said that this episode we would find out what the MRO would do with all the money that it got from ransoming Miss Stone, but, well, uh, it's going to be a little while before we actually get to that. There's more events than I thought between now and that, so we'll get there very soon. So, another reason to keep listening. Anyways, this episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. As always, check out bghistorypodcast.com for a lot more information. You can find a list of major characters from every single episode, a list of uh, timelines, images, all kinds of cool stuff. So check that out, and I will see you in the next one.